Amen. Good morning, everybody. Have a seat. Uh, I love that last song, and am I, am I on? Okay. I love that last song, and, and I love the slide for it. Does that not get you ready for winter? Um, one day we're going to wake up, and that's going to look what Bakersfield's going to look like. No, I know. I know. But still. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, please uh, turn to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. We're going to continue in our series in 1 John. Uh, and real quick, while you're doing that, I just want to remind you, uh, as John told you guys, you guys, we have the tabs back there of the work. Those, those tabs that are hanging with the pictures on them, those are, uh, those are works. Most of them are church plants. One of them uh, is a local ministry uh, that together we support, support. So together we send money to those people um, every month. So all the money that comes in as a church, we set aside 13% of the money that comes in and we send it back out, okay, uh, to different um, uh, ministries. Some of it we set aside for our own church plan in the future, but it's all money that is set aside for that type of work. Um, and so those tags back there that you can take home with you are the uh, people that we are actually sending money to every, every month. So, so there's, face, there's one that doesn't have a picture. Uh, they're working with the underground church in China. Uh, and so it's hard to get a picture of them. <laughs> they don't just email pictures when you're uh, in uh, underground China. Because although Christianity is legal in China, it has to be the government church, um, which isn't uh, always the best. So uh, there is uh, underground churches in China still uh, that are faithfully proclaiming the gospel and raising up pa- uh, pastors to plant more churches. So we encourage you to take those tags with you uh, through the week. Pray for those as a family. And then also, uh, some of the leaders got together this week. Guys, we do this. There's cards back there. You can pin them to the board. We came together. We pulled them off the board this week, uh, and we prayed for them together. So these are things that we're taking serious. We want to grow as a church uh, as a step of maturity in praying for one another uh, and praying that, uh, you know, and Jesus says uh, that the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. So pray for the Lord of the harvest. And then he says, pray that more workers would be sent, Right? Uh, And so that's what we want to do together. So I encourage you guys to do that in your missional communities, do that as your family units, do that as part of your individual devotional time uh, as well. So 1 John, uh, the Apostle John uh, wrote the same, uh, the same Apostle that wrote the book of John, the Gospel of John, wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, And so what we're wanting to do is we're wanting to kind of go slowly through the book of 1st John together um, because there's a few phrases that he uses uh, over and over again, and one of them is that you may know. Uh, and so that's why we're, that's what we want to do. We want to kind of, if we can, the best that we can, um, um, understand the situations that prompted the writing of this letter um, and understand what it meant to those people at that time. But since it is God who wrote the letter through John and God does not change, and as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. So listen, there's no new way to sin, right? It's been done. There's nothing new under the sun. It's been done before. It'll be done again. So that tells us that the truth that the Apostle John wrote to this church are still valid for us today. Right? They still have meaning for us today. And that's what we want to understand. We want to learn what it is that the Holy Spirit um, wanted us to know um, and these, these, our forefathers, really, in the faith to know. Um, and so let me remind us, because this is going to really set the tone for this morning's message, is I want to briefly remind us of why John did write the letter. And, and mostly he wrote it because this church had experienced a mass exodus. 
there was a, there was a division that happened, right? And, and the division came from a false teaching. So indirectly, if I can take a moment, we have to be careful because false teachings don't arise from outside the church and try and make their way in. False teachings arise from usually within the church and they try and spread. And that's what happened here. And next, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how John kind of addresses that and says, listen, those people were not really ever saved because if they were, they wouldn't have departed the truth. But, but for right now, we're at this point at verses 7 through 14 of chapter 2 where he tells them that he wants them to know, listen, he wants them to know that the true light is already shining. And the reason we have to remind ourselves of the setting is because the false teaching that arose in this church was called Gnosticism. And here's what Gnosticism taught. It taught, what it did is it, it took distinct Christian beliefs and it, and it changed them just a little bit here and there. It didn't change everything. It didn't reject Christianity altogether or Christ altogether, but it took a different unbiblical bent on what Christianity is or what God is or who God is and what God has done. And so what Gnosticism taught is that redemption or the forgiveness of sins comes through affirming the divine light that is already in the human soul. So now can we get a, maybe a little bit better understanding of why John wanted them to know that the true light is already shining? You, there, there, you don't have to try and dig deep inside of yourself to uncover this light. The true light is already shining. And so remember, we've talked about in the few weeks that we've been in First John, we've talked about the emotions and the things that the people, the leaders and the people of the church must have gone through in defending their faith from people who they loved dearly. People who they were close to. People who they probably did a lot of good works with in the city. And all of a sudden now these people are, are, are leaving in a, such a divisive manner that it's somebody has to be wrong. There's no... There's no, this isn't the Dodgers parting ways with Don Mattingly where everybody's like, hey, at both sides, this is what's best for both. It's am-. No, this is like somebody's wrong. We can't both be right. And so here this church is left defending themselves against this new revelation or this new teaching. Because that's a part of Gnosticism also is that there's this way to grow in your faith by, by constantly achieving new levels. So maturity is like these new uh, levels that come upon you as, you as you really dive deeper into yourself. And so John wants them to know, he reminds them that the true light is already shining. So let's read the text together. I'll pray. Um, and then I want to take you through seven evidences uh, that John gives in these verses that the true light is already shining. So verse 7, he says, Beloved. I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. 
I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that you would uh, illuminate uh, the words of this text so that it would not be black and white ink and paper, but it would be the living word of God that divides bone and marrow. I pray, Lord, for the courage that uh, we all need, Lord, to uh, repent of areas where we don't believe or areas where we don't live in accordance with what we believe. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, God, even though we haven't even talked about it yet, we thank you that the true light is already shining. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that that light would be shown even clearer and sharper on the depths of our heart, the entirety of our life, Lord, that we may believe, we may be strengthened in your word. Amen. Amen. So seven evidences that he gives as I was going through this, that the true light is already shining. And the first evidence that I want uh, to, to point out to us is simply that it is an old commandment. Look at verse 7 again with me. He says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. This is extremely important when we remember that there were people trying to divide this church over what? A new commandment, basically. A new teaching. There's something new. And isn't that the way that our hearts yearn for? We want something new. That's one of the biggest uh, criticisms, I guess, if you will, of Christianity on the whole, and the Bible specifically, is that it's old. It's outdated. We've, we've what? We've advanced as people. We've come along. It was great for them back then, but they didn't have the Internet. Right? Like, they didn't deal with climate change. Like, it's, it's different We need something new. But right off the bat, the Apostle John tells him, no, there's nothing new, it's old. And so what is the old commandment that he's talking about? Love God, love one another. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That alone gives us enough to do for the rest of our existence on earth. If we were to take the collective years of people in this room of not age, but of years of being born again or years being a Christian following Christ, it's going to be a really big number. And then if we take a poll of individuals in here who do this all the time, every time perfectly, we're not going to come out looking very well. So we're faced with two choices. We either dig down deep for that light in our heart that's shining, it's in there somewhere, Right? Or we refresh our lives in the truth that the true light is already shining. That we are to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. And then in Leviticus 19, the law said that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the old commandment. Jesus sums it up in Matthew 22. Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus says, you get these two things down, don't even worry learning about anything else because everything else is all encompassed in these two things. You love God first. He doesn't say God, make God your priority. He says you love God with all your heart, which is a symbol of your life, 
with all your soul, with, all, with everything there is, you love God. And then as if to say, the way that we will know if we're really loving God, and this is what John gets here in a few verses, is because we will love our neighbors as ourselves. We cannot not love our neighbors as ourselves and love God with all our heart, soul, mind. You see, we do not need a new revelation. We don't. What we need to do is we need to obey what we already know. So much of Christianity is spent on trying to find this new revelation, this new word from God, while we completely neglect what we already know. It's like a spoiled kid on Christmas. There we come into Christmas season, right? Um, I love Jesus being born. I love that God pursued us and that we do not have to pursue God uh, first. But I hate Christmas. (laughs) I do. I hate the commercialism. Uh, I hate how we will in one breath sing joy to the world and then in the next breath we are just greedy, selfish, miserable people. Uh, But yet... Second, like this hit our home personally last year. We, Katie and I were staying up late watching something and they were singing Joy to the World. And if you listen to the words of the song, and it's like, how are they singing that? It's not just some Christmas cliche. But it's the truth that joy to the world, the Savior has come. So I praise God for that. But, but us constantly wanting new revelation and new things from, from God is like a kid who just opened up the grand prize gift. Some of you grew up as like, we grew up in my house, like it was the gift from Santa, the big gift, right? And we open it and we're like, okay, I want more. Dad hasn't even put it together yet and I want more. Right? I haven't even, I haven't even enjoyed it enough yet to break it. Or, or, or for us to have to replace the batteries, or if we, those with little kids, for the parents to get annoyed by the sounds the stinking little toy makes. Like, and we're not even that far into it yet, and we're asking for more. This is great, but it's insufficient. I want more. And John says, no, you don't need more. You need the old. You need to love God with all your heart, soul, your mind, and you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's an evidence that he gives that the true light is shining because this light has been shining long before these Gnostics came on the scene trying to teach something different. God doesn't change. He's not going to say to people 500 years ago, here's how you were saved. And then people 1,000 years ago, here's how you were saved. And then to us today, here's how you were saved. No, the true light has already been shining. It's the same commandment. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The second evidence that John gives is in verse 8, where he goes on to say, at the same time, and I'm going to explain this because it can be a little tricky, uh, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. What can be a little confusing is that word new, or so he says this is not a new commandment, but this is a new commandment, right? So, So this is where it's important for us to go to the original language and look at what he was actually writing. And this word that he uses, it's in respect to substance, okay? And what it means is it's of a new kind, it's unprecedented, it's novel, it's uncommon, or it's unheard of. That's why they would use that word. And then he tells us that this new commandment is what it's true in, in him. So let's wrap this together. Here's what he's saying. Although it is the same commandment, you love God uh, with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself, but he's saying what's new about it is now we have seen Jesus. It's not, that it's, it's not that it's new, but the substance of it is something that we have never seen before. It's unprecedented. 
God made the sacrifice. God paid the price. Therefore, you can be saved. He says this is true in him. And who? This is true in Jesus. So it's not that the commandment has changed. We were always to love God with our heart, soul, and our mind, and love our neighbors of ourselves. But now the substance of that love is changed. It's un- that part is it's unprecedented. It hadn't been heard of. Nobody had done that before. No king went into battle and died on behalf of his servants. The servant's purpose in life was to protect the king, right? Protect the crown, protect the kingdom. It's unprecedented that the king of kings, the prince of peace, the ruler of all things, came and did battle, gave his life that we could live. And then in that same verse, he gives the third evidence that the true light is shining. It's because darkness is passing away. Now listen. Listen. It might not seem like it. You might look at your life. You might look at your circle of influence, your, your, your sphere in which you live, and it might not feel that darkness is passing away. But the truth is, is that the darkness is passing away. There are times in our lives where we feel that darkness is defeating the light. But God has declared that the darkness is being overcome by the light. Now, let me give you some statistics to kind of back that up a little bit. This is according to a March 2015 article in Christianity Today, okay? In Europe, in 1900, there was 368.2 million Christians, okay? 368.2 million Christians. As of 2015, there are just under, a hair under 560 million Christians. That's a 52.2% increase. 115 years. Yeah. In Africa, in 1900, there were fewer than 9 million Christians. You want to know how many there are today? Over 541 million Christians in Africa today. In the last 15 years alone, there's been over a 50% increase in the amount of Christians in Africa. The darkness is passing away. The light is shining. Worldwide, do you realize that there are more than 2.4 billion Christians? And that, 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 that accounts for a third of the entire population. No matter what the media tells you, the, the darkness is passing away. The true light is shining. And it is still as effective today as it was in 1900, as it was in 1800, as it was before that, in saving lost souls. In comparison, remember, 2.4 billion Christians. In comparison, you want to guess how many atheists there are in uh, the world? How many claimed atheists there are? 500 million? 136.4 million atheists. But yet, doesn't it feel like there's more atheists than Christians? Doesn't it feel like they, they matter more? That they have a louder voice? That, that there's more of them in mass that outweighs Christianity? Now listen, as I tell you these statistics, uh, I, I am not uh, going to personally confirm that there are 2.4 billion Christians. 
I'm sure a lot of those people who say I'm a Christian are not actually saved because they don't actually know what it means to be saved because they have never confessed and repented of their sins and received Christ's work, his atonement on their behalf, right? Remember a couple weeks, John, the propitiation. They never received Jesus as the propitiation of their sins, the guilt offering. So, so we, can, we can say, but yet still make our case, that 2.4 might be an overstatement. Regardless, it's growing. God's word is doing what he has promised it will do. You realize that God's word is doing what he has promised that it will do. So don't measure God's faithfulness or the effect of your life by the parts, but measure them by the whole. Measure it by the whole. You might be in a dark place. You might not feel like the true light is shining and that the darkness is winning. Look back on your life. See where you've came from. Let me, let me take that back. See where God has brought you. See what God has delivered you from. Measure his faithfulness to you by the whole. Our missional communities, they might not look like they, our little church might not look like we've accomplished much, right? As we look at it today, but if we look at it as the whole, as you look at your life and your efforts in making disciples, don't look at the effectiveness of today or this week. Look at the whole. By God's grace, when we are 50 years down, we will be able to look back and be able to come up with some sort of, of like God in his grace for whatever reason allowed us to proclaim the gospel and serve this many people. And it might be one a day for the rest of our life. But you know how many that is at the rest of our life at one a day? So whereas we might think that our missional communities reaching out to one or two people at a time is insignificant, stay faithful. Discipleship is, a, is, is, a, is an obedience in the same direction, a long obedience in the same direction. And who knows how many people were were really ministered to by the words that we brought in God's name and how many people those people had been ministered. See, there's no way to really quantify it. But the darkness is passing away. The fourth evidence that John gives that the true light is shining is because, praise God for this, sins are forgiven. Verse 12, jump down to verse 12. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, remember, little children, who's he talking about? Is he talking about immature Christians here? No. He's talking about the whole church. Chapter 2, verse 1. What does he say? He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... He has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So right here, he is saying, he is talking to the church. What is the church? The church is God's people. It's not this building. We were questioned on that this week. You really say that you're going to the building on purpose? Yeah? Yeah? Why? Well, because we say what we mean, um, and and we like to use words correctly. Right? Like when we say winners, everybody thinks of Broncos. When we say <laughs> losers, everybody thinks of that black and silver team in the Bay Area. We like to use words appropriately. We would never say winners. To, right? Like 
People know we're full, right? But we want to use our words correctly because our words do matter. And when we tell our kids, no, every, are we going to church today? No, we never go to church. We are the church. Yes, we're going to go to the building today and gather. Absolutely. Yes, we mean it when we say that. But he says here, little children, so it's the whole church. Now notice, whose sake have sins been forgiven for? His namesake. God in his glory gives us the benefit of the forgiveness of sins. But it is for his namesake. It is so that the glory of a living and loving and perfect and holy God would be seen in a broken and dying and depressed and panicking and anxiety-stricken and fearful and crime-ridden world. It's his glory. You were not saved. I was not saved because I'm awesome and because I made the right choice. I was saved. You were saved because God's name His glory was shown in my salvation, in your salvation. That the world might see that God is different. That's what holy means, to be set apart for God's good. So that the world might see that God is different than the other things that proclaim themselves as God over our lives. Evidence number five is because you know him. If the true light wasn't shining, you couldn't know him. Do you know that? We couldn't know him if the true light wasn't shining. Let's read verses 13 and 14, and then we'll kind of come back and walk through them. Verse 13, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So now notice there's two interesting nuances here when he claims to those that you know him. First nuance um, is the word know. What it means. It means to be taking on knowledge. It's the, it, listen, it's, it's not, listen, it's not the seeking of knowledge. It's the receiving of knowledge. Okay. The true light is already shining. You don't have to go seek it. You receive it. It's there. It's real. Jesus said, you don't need to ask for another sign. The biggest sign has been given to you. Destroy this temple, and three days later, it will rise again. The other nuance is how he switches from fathers to young men to children. And, but now notice when he, says, when he says that because you know him... He doesn't address the young men. He addresses the fathers and the children. So he says, verse 13, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Skip down to the end of the verse. I write to you children because you know the father. Okay? Fathers, children. What's going on? What does it mean? I'm confused. Little children uh, that we read in verse 12 is the whole church. Now he's going to begin to narrow his scope of evidences of why the true light is shining. Because there are fathers among you. Because, listen, it says specifically, because you know him who is from the beginning. This isn't speaking to those of us in the church who are fathers. This is speaking to those of us who are in the church who are mature in the Lord. Because he says, 
your father because you have known him, what, from the beginning. It speaks to maturity. You see, fathers are those who have a firm grasp on the heart and the ways of God. They know him who is from the beginning. Every church needs fathers. I say that carefully, (laughs) loosely. Every church needs mature men and women who have a firm grasp on God's work and God's ways. Every church church doesn't need one. Any church that has one is unhealthy and hurting. Every church needs many. When he says children in this verse, he's speaking to, to immature believers, not necessarily because they are just struggling to believe or to grow, but because they're young. They're young in their faith. But notice how he reassures them that although, they, although he calls them children, he reassures them that they are saved because he says, I write to you children because you know the Father. You know the Father. So the true life, listen, Father started as what? Children. And then they grew into young men. And then they became Fathers. The true light is shining because we know him who is from the beginning as father. Christianity is, is about knowing the father. You are not saved if you do not know the father. The only way to know the father, Jesus says, is to know him. The only way that we can submit our lives to, to what Christ has done so that we may know the fathers because the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts us of our sins and he shows us, he illuminates the truth of Jesus. C.S. Lewis's conversion story blows my mind. He fought Christianity for years, so much so that he spent his life trying to dis- discount it. Then he goes for a bus ride, probably to a pub, possibly to meet Tolkien. I don't know that for sure. He's on a bus. He got on the bus completely denying, completely denying the existence of God and the truth of Jesus Christ. He walks down off the bus. He's saved. Can't explain it. Other than, in that bus, the Holy Spirit met him and he illuminated the truth of Jesus Christ, the propitiation for C.S. Lewis's sins, and he believed. But the true light is shining. Evidence number six, he says, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, this is the part where in verse 13, uh, where he addresses the young men. So remember, if you, if you write in your Bibles, which you should, it's not sinful or unholy, but, but in verse 12, above little children, just write the whole church. Write the words, the whole church. In verse 13, above fathers, just write the word mature. Above the word children, write, um, you know, new believers. Sometimes it is rebellious believers that are children, right? <laughs> like when, sometimes uh, you might have uh, been saved 13 years ago, but you're a little kid, so yeah, I'm going to talk to you as a little kid until you grow up. But that's another sermon. So, but then above young men, I wrote in my Bible, I just wrote, not children, not fathers. Right? They're not in the class of children where they're immature, but yet they're not yet to that stage where, where Apostle John is calling them fathers because they are mature because of their grasp on, on the heart and the ways of God. But he says, young men, I write to you because, why? You have, circle the word, word have, you have overcome 
sin. Excuse me, you have overcome the evil one. And so these young men are not the fully matured that are fathers. They are not the newly saved that are children, but they are at a level of maturity that is only reached because they knew the Father. And I love how it's a statement of fact. Wouldn't you think that if you're not in the class of father, then somebody would not be writing to you telling you you have overcome the evil one? Like, wouldn't you think that that would have been written to the fathers? Like, they're the mature ones, right? They're the ones who have overcome, right? He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He writes it to the young men. It's a statement of fact. And note that it's an individual effect. He says you don't overcome evil. You've overcome the evil one. You have been saved. And what this is, is this is a testament to the Holy Spirit in their lives, giving them the power to overcome sin on a daily basis. They're further along than the children. Right? They, they know the gospel is not just what saves them and gets them in, in the pool, but it is really the water by which they wade and swim. And they know that, that, that their sins in the past, the gospel saved them from their sins in the past. But they know, they've come to know and, and, and put into practice in their life that the gospel also is the power that saves them daily from the power of sin, that they can say no. They know that they have been freed from sin and, and the bondage that was attached to it. So fathers, young men, children, all of us fall into one of those groups. All of us in this church fall into one of those groups. Lastly, the last evidence, number seven, is that the true light is shining because he says that you are strong. And again here he is referencing the young men. But notice, listen, notice the natural process of maturity in his writing from a child to a young man to a father. From a child to a young man to a father. So listen to me. I say this as gently as a non-priestly type person can say this. There are children in our church and in this room that need to grow up into young men. There are young men in this church who need to grow up into fathers. Okay? That's where we're at. Where we'll always be at. But notice... I want us to notice, listen, we have, to, we have to, we will miss this. Becoming, going from child to young man to father is not about you perceiving yourself as more holy than me because you don't do some of the things that I do that you deem are sinful. Did you follow it? If you missed it, catch the podcast right down because I made it up and I'm not exactly sure I could say it the same way. But it is not tied to a, our, mine or yours or our uh, um, collective perception of what holy is. Here's what he ties it to. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, the word of God abides in you. The strength that he, he, he really is patting them on the back for having is directly tied to the word of God abiding in them. So if you're here today and you're a child that needs to become a young man, then allow the Word of God to abide in you. Hide it in your heart so that you too will grow in strength and maturity. The church, listen guys, the church, our church, any church, I'm speaking to any local church, is not to be made up of one father and a bunch of children. 
That's an orphanage. Jeff Vanderstelt talks and writes a lot about this. That's an orphanage. We are not called to be an orphanage. We are called to be a family that is set apart for the purposes of God. That means we don't have 20 children and one dad running around. That means that, that, the, that the Spirit is doing His work, and we together, collectively, men and women, don't be thrown off by the gender in the, in the language here. This is, this is men and women. Um, we are to, together to be maturing in the abiding of God's Word, that as we abide in His Word, what does uh, 2 Corinthians 3 tell us? That as we stare at the glory of the Lord, He changes us from glory to glory. And this is from who? It's from the Spirit. Our work is to stare at the beauty of Christ. Our work is to be deeper know the work of Jesus on our behalf. As we learn that, the Holy Spirit transforms us. Glory to glory, the Bible says. We are not to be a church with one leader. No church is to be a church with... This is why, the, this is why we are all called Protestants and not Roman Catholics. Because we don't agree with that. Local churches must be made up. This is why we believe in a plurality of elders without getting into that right now. But listen, for a church to be healthy, it must have a plurality of mature men and women leading, investing in the young men, investing in the children, while the young men are investing in the children as well. Right? It's not a leapfrog program. It's this we're in this together as family, walking together. The way our, our, our family unit should walk, hus- husband, wife, and kids together. That's God's design for the church. So, as I wrap up this morning, if you are here and you're a father, let me encourage you to press on. Continue fighting the good fight. Don't believe what you see in the physical, but walk by faith. That the true light is shining. That the darkness is passing away. Live your lives in such a way that the young men and the children see that and are aspired to follow you. If you're here and you're a young man or a woman, but you fall into that category where you have grown in maturity and you are strong because the Word of God is abiding in you, then continue abiding in the Word of God. This is why together as a church, we memorize Scripture. We're supposed to be memorizing Scripture. David said, I have hidden the Word of God in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Who is the Word of God? Jesus. I have hidden Christ in my heart that I might not sin against God. The reason this Word is so... Listen, I'm with you. Do I, do, would it be easier if like God was physically here with us? Would it be easier to believe, easier to obey, easier to follow, easier to sacrifice for? Yes and amen. Yes. Yes. But God in his fatherly care said that's not how it should be. In fact, the Bible tells us, blessed are those who, who believe and don't see, which is us. But God, in his word, has given us everything that we need to know about him, to know how, how, how he cares for his people as a father, how he wants people to, to come and have a permanent seat at the dinner table and know him as father. 
Do we need to experience God? Yes. But they all have to be founded and viewed through the lens of Scripture, not the other way around. We don't interpret Scripture based on the way we have experienced God. Because you know what? All those Christians in Sudan whose kids are being taken from them and raped and murdered in front of them, they wouldn't see that this God is true if they viewed God through their experience. They wouldn't see God as love, as caring, as sovereign. But if we take what we know about God and then we view these difficult circumstances, we might not still this side of of heaven ever come to a solid understanding of it, but there's still rest in it. There's peace in it. So, so, So young men, increase in your strength so that it would be said of you too that you know him who is from the beginning. That you will mature to the point where people look at you and that would be written about you. Follow the fathers, young men. Lead the children. And if you're here today and you're, you're, you're one of the children, then rest assured that you know the Father. This is not a, a, a condemnation. We are not presenting a ladder for you to climb in the church culture, the church world, right? We're not an organization that says, okay, so this is just our language. You're a child. And then when you give so much or you serve so much, you become a young man. And then when you give more and you sacrifice more, you become... No, that's not what we're saying. It's the natural, just as it's natural for our children to grow up and be trained in the fear and the admonition of the Lord so they would grow into young men and women who love Him and lead their lives for Him who will eventually become fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers. Right? It's the same process. Rest assured that you know the Father. Continue to love Him and learn about Him. Dive into his word. Follow the fathers and the young men that you too will grow in your strength of faith. And if by chance you are here this morning and you're none of those three, then we invite you this morning to know the Father. Everything that needs to be done has been done. You may know him this instant. Believe that Jesus was the propitiation for your sin, that Jesus was given as an offering for your guilt. And that God's wrath was poured out on Christ. And when you believe, it is therefore held back from you. You never have to experience the wrath of God when you know God as Father. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that your spirit would be making known the truth. Uh, Lord, to every soul that is here, that every soul that might ever hear this, God. But that you would make known the truth that the true light is already shining. That the true light is not shining from within us, but the true light has been shown upon us. And Lord, that that light is there for us to receive, for us to walk in, for us to grow in, for us to cling to in times of trials and tribulation and the storms of life. I thank you that you are a good God, that you are a faithful and loving Father. I thank you that our way of salvation is not predicated upon what we do, but it was predicated upon the perfect, sinless life of your son, Jesus Christ, and his faithfulness to you to the point of death. As we so often sing here, God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe that. Amen.